There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France. Which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi. It's more popular than being French. See you in there. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's pod, we'll talk about some wild new evidence that has emerged just in time for Donald Trump's impeachment trial, which starts next week. And we'll talk about last night's Democratic debate, the first of 2020 and the last before the Iowa caucuses. Uh, first, a few housekeeping notes from us. Tommy, I believe there's a new uh, Pod Save the World out there today. Is. There is. First, the, the headline out of it was Ben Rhodes knows a lot about Megxit which is uh, Meghan Markle and Harry leaving he's uh, a royal watcher. the UK for, I guess, Canada. <laughs> he's, he's our royal kind of correspondent. But we spent most of the uh, conversation talking about the latest from Iran, tragic shootdown of a uh, civilian airliner, the protests in response, and what it all means with a great guest, Jason Rezaian, who is a former Tehran bureau chief for the Washington Post. So don't miss that one. And something else. A CNN contributor? Wasn't he in prison in Iran for... Yeah, I mean, he was in prison for 544 days Dan, but do you want to be the, defined by the worst thing that happened to you? Oh, he wrote a book about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm just kidding. You wrote a book about <laughs> better, it. I should definitely It's better it. than being defined by a CNN <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dan. Former CNN former contributor. Former CNN. <laughs> like Corey Lewandowski and Jeffrey Lord, I'm a former CNN contributor. <laughs> yeah. So, and sometimes CNN contributors do feel pretty trapped. <laughs> that was so devastating. God, John. It was just right there. I know you had that in you. Um, also... If you haven't yet subscribed to The Wilderness and you listen to this show, which is most of you, please do me and yourself a favor. Go subscribe right now. I promise you'll like it. You'll learn something. You'll be inspired. You'll be energized for 2020. So go subscribe. Look, if you hate groupthink and conventional wisdom, thank you for listening anyway. But The Wilderness will break you out of that because you'll go to real focus groups with people all across the country. But yeah, you'll be you'll be uncomfortable, but you'll also you'll also be inspired yeah, too. David Pluff might scare the shit out of you. Right. Uh, Dan, what's going on with Untrumping America? As folks may remember, last week we announced a promotional giveaway where if you pre-order the book between now and this Friday, you can get a poster 
of the cover that has not of Dan, not of me, which I thought not not yet. That stay tuned. <laughs> it's a calendar. Uh, <laughs> they get more racy as we go. That that is exactly Lovett admitting he did not listen to the Thursday. I, episode. Know. I <laughs> listened to it. I did listen to it. I know exactly. I know. You know what, Dan? I will prove I listened to it because you're signing every single one, and they offered you the opportunity to have an auto pen, Ooh, and you said okay. no. Oh, Eat shit, check. Pfeiffer. Like like Joe Biden on Iraq. I apologize. Man, this is a <laughs> this is like this is like the Warren Sanders part of the debate right now. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not shaking your hand. Yes. <laughs> and so this is a reminder that if you pre-order the book, you go to untroubingamerica.com and you upload your purchase, you can get a poster. We are extending the deadline Woo! from midnight Friday to midnight Monday, which is in part because of high demand and also because it's a holiday weekend. I think no one at my publisher wanted to update the website over the weekend. So you now, now have till Monday. The poster says on November 3rd, let's untrump America. Is a great thing to hang up to annoy the MAGA people in your life and to remind the people in your life who are disengaged from politics that they have to fucking vote on November 3rd. Perfect. No, no one talks more shit about their publisher than Dan Pfeiffer. <laughs> you know, it's really a test as to whether they listen to the pod. Yeah, that's true. Finally, some fun news from all of us. Uh, pod Save America is going on tour for 2020. The pre-sale is live today from January 15th to January 17th on cricket.com slash events with code crooked 2020 uh, and tickets go on sale to the public on saturday january 18th get those tickets come hang out crooked.com slash events we're going everywhere we're not going everywhere i know there's a lot of every time we announce this people complain that we're not coming to their city but you know we'll, we'll be somewhere nearby you yeah and we're excited we're pumped. Uh, um all right before we get to the debate we've got quite a bit of news on impeachment the house is voting today to send articles of impeachment to the senate for a trial that may begin as early as next tuesday uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced this morning that the impeachment managers from the House, the people who will act as prosecutors, will be Adam Schiff, Jerry Nadler, Hakeem Jeffries, Zoe Lofgren, Val Demings, Sylvia Garcia, and Jason Crow. The impeachment Avengers. That's who it is. Uh, what do you guys think of this crew? Um, I think we had all hoped that it might include uh, former Republican Justin Amash. It does not. But, you know, what do you guys think? Any thoughts on the uh, in the crew here? They seem great. It's a good group they of people. They seem great. I think so. Look, you got Adam Schiff on that team. He's a fucking all-star. No complaints. Val Demings is great. A yeah. A lot of people on there. Val Demings is great. Zoe Lofgren has been through. We were just talking. Yeah. I were talking about. She worked on the Nixon impeachment. Really. She went impeachments. Around. She's been a, through two impeachments. She's been, out of, she's been involved in two out of the three so far. This is the fourth. God, I wonder who the Republicans are going to pick. Just the worst people on the planet. Yeah. Which, you know, they have a big pool. Um, One one thing that unites all the Democrats is they all have backgrounds as litigators, uh, which Pelosi seems good. Yeah. Um, So that's it for the House. House is done now. Over in the Senate, White House officials told CBS News on Monday that they expect a group of at least four, likely more Republican senators who will force a vote to call witnesses and vote for witnesses, a group that might include Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, Cory Gardner, maybe even Rand Paul, Lamar Alexander. Um, President Trump has pressured Republican senators to dismiss the charges entirely before the trial begins. Uh, But Missouri's Roy Blunt told reporters on Monday that the Republicans don't have the votes to make that happen. So we are going to get ourselves a trial. We're going to get ourselves a vote on witnesses. Uh, I'd say this is a pretty big win for Pelosi's strategy of withholding the articles of impeachment uh, to highlight McConnell's attempt at a cover-up. What do you guys think? Yes. Unequivocally, yes. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I know Chris Eliza doesn't think so, but I, I, it, <laughs> I didn't know that, and I'm going to continue to not know that. I mean, like the, the polling suggested that people, <laughs> the American people, wanted to hear from more witnesses. There now seems like there's a good chance we'll hear from key witnesses. Never did I think we'd get John Bolton to testify. Somehow, Nancy Pelosi pulled a rabbit out of a hat here. This is great. Yeah, I disagree with Chris Eliza. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that Nancy, Nancy Pelosi did not gamble and lose in this. I will say that I will believe that we are going to get witnesses when John Bolton walks into the Senate floor because no one ever you got- You want to see the mustache on your I, TV. Yes, I want to see the mustache. <laughs> yeah. I, no one ever got rich betting on the good faith and patriotism of Senate Republicans. So yeah. let's see it happen first. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, we don't know. Here's what we do know. We know that Nancy Pelosi holding the articles made it possible to have this very long and lengthy and difficult debate for Republicans about whether to have witnesses. It seems- that we've gotten to a place where many of those Republicans are open to witnesses. If we end up in a trial and they, you know, Mitch McConnell somehow manages to wrangle them all back in and there are no witnesses, it doesn't mean Nancy Pelosi's gambit was a mistake. It means it was worth trying. If we do end up with witnesses, then it's unequivocal that it worked. Yeah, I mean, working backwards here from a highly likely acquittal, right? And, you know, a couple of weeks of fucking headlines. Donald Trump is acquitted. Uh, our Democrats screwed now in 2020. It's going to be a horrible couple of weeks. Just getting ready for that. Um, <laughs> it's been what, a horrible couple of years. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But what, what are the wins here? What counts as a win for Democrats? I think it's a win if we get witnesses. Uh, it's a win if John Bolton is one of those witnesses and testifying. It's a witness if some Republicans break to vote for those witnesses and to vote for uh, to hear from John Bolton. It's also, by the way, I think because Pelosi withheld the articles, they now think that it's it's likely that Donald Trump will have to give his State of the Union on February 4th while the trial is happening. We don't know that for sure yet. But (laughs) yeah, if that happens, if he's not able to give the State of the Union after he's acquitted, I also think that is a very big win because that sucks for him. Here's my take. Democrats have already won. All right. Let's hear that. Why? Why do you think that? Because... The period by which Donald Trump had the best chance to strengthen his hand for the 2020 election was the period between Labor Day of last year and now. And he spent all of that time having a Twitter tantrum about impeachment instead of talking about the economy. Like, time is the only non-renewable resource in politics. And so every interview statement tweet about impeachment is an interview statement tweet not about the economy or making an argument about promises kept or any of the other things we will see in his Super Bowl ad, it was just flailing. And he yeah. will, he enters this year no stronger than he was before impeachment. He missed his opportunity. Maybe not weaker, but definitely not stronger. And, and we, he was pretty weak already. We've talked about this in, before as it relates to Obama, is Obama's numbers on Labor Day 2011 were very similar to Trump's on Labor Day 2011. Obama spent the, the rest of that year making a case on the economy, talking about inequality, rolling out a jobs package, staring down Republicans on a budget vote. And he exited that year in both external and internal polling. He went from 41% to 49%. His approval on election day in 2012 was 49%. And Trump- Is right now at like 42.8%. Same, same where he was that time. So he so there is an opportunity cost here. So for all the predictions about the politics, we don't know what, what what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to play out. People will probably flush it down the memory hole between now and then. But- we do know what has happened to date, and there was a massive opportunity cost for Trump. And most importantly, Democrats did the right thing. What about um, McConnell made a promise yesterday, Tommy, that if uh, Democrats uh, do, if we do call witnesses, if there's a vote to call witnesses, that um, he'll promise to call uh, witnesses that Democrats don't like? You know, I, I think that would maybe be 
challenging for the Biden campaign. And there's a chance that we will care a lot about bad stories for the Biden campaign if Joe Biden is the nominee. But I do think it's worth it. I mean, look, if he calls Hunter Biden, impresses a private citizen who happens to be the son of a U.S. senator on his business activities, I think that's a hell of a lot less significant than Donald Trump using the power of the presidency to get a foreign government to go after his political opponents. It seems self-evident to me. Yeah, I think you kind of just you got to show up at that point and just deal with it. Yeah, and we sort of know the story right now. Like there's, they're going to try to do their best to to smear Hunter Biden and to smear Joe Biden using Hunter Biden. But I think it's it, the, the story is pretty clear what happened. We shouldn't be afraid of it. You so know? you would make that trade? Uh, for, yeah, I don't. Th- I think if they're trying to call Joe Biden, which is fucking absurd, then I wouldn't make that trade. But I don't think the votes are there for that. I think the I think if they call Hunter Biden, then yeah, I would think I would make that trade is for it John a- Bolton. 50 vote per witness situation? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yet another reason that Pelosi's strategy to wait was smart is that new evidence came to light on Tuesday by way of Lev Parnas, one of the goons who's been indicted for the work he apparently did on behalf of Rudy Giuliani to dig up dirt on the Bidens in Ukraine. It includes damaging notes and text messages, including a crazy note that Parnas wrote on Ritz-Carlton Stationery at the Ritz-Carlton in Vienna that said, quote, Get Zelensky to announce the Biden case will be investigated. It also included a set of texts to Parnas from a failed Republican congressional candidate named Robert Hyde, who said he'd been tracking Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch's movements in Ukraine, knew when her phone and computer were off, and wrote, quote, They are willing to help if we, you, would like a price. Guess you can do anything in the Ukraine with money. If you want her out, they need to make contact with security forces. What in the fuck is going on here? Um, yeah, it does seem as though uh, the Pine Barrens episode of Sopranos was sort of playing out <laughs> in Ukraine as they were following this woman. I mean, it's worth noting, too. Scary. It's scary. It sounds as bad as it sounds, and it sounds incredibly nefarious. Uh, it's also worth noting that these texts, the most damning texts you just read were the last week of March in 2019. Uh, Within weeks, uh, uh, Yovanovitch is recalled and told she needs to come back, and perhaps because of threats against her in Ukraine. So we don't know how those things fit together, but, you know, Yovanovitch herself has now said that, you know, she finds this disturbing and it should be investigated. And the scale of it, I mean, we're so used to Trump scandals. The president of the United States his personal lawyer may have deployed goons and henchmen to trail a U.S. ambassador, possibly threaten that ambassador with violence. You know, I'm gobsmacked. That's what I am. What did you think, Tommy? I just, look, we'll figure out. This guy, Mr. Hyde, seems like he's got, got you know, a few sandwiches short of a combination platter, you know? But, like, <laughs> he's, um, but if it's true, like, the kinds of people who would track an ambassador uh, in Ukraine are the kinds of people you should really worry about you know these are like mafia maybe kgb or you know russian intelligence connected types of people i mean that's a big scary deal I mean, I'm sure this is a coincidence, but remember the very ominous thing that Trump said to Zelensky? Yeah, she's going to go through some things. <laughs> what were those things, pal? I mean, there's also another connection here we learned is um, there were text messages where the former corrupt prosecutor uh, in Ukraine that Biden got fired, Yuri Litsenko, um, tells Parnas that there's a quid pro quo. If Trump fires Yovanovitch, who he hates, he'll make allegations about Biden. 
which is an, <laughs> which is just connecting Yovanovitch to all of the other quid pro quo stuff because there was always a question, well, how she related to this other than they wanted to get her out of the way because they think that she was uh, non-corrupt. <laughs> well, it turns out that Lutsenko uh, wanted her out and mm-hmm. said, oh, I'll make, al- I'll make allegations to fucking John Solomon yeah. about Joe Biden that are fake if Upstanding you do Upstanding prosecutor. Yep, exactly. I mean, it is worth noting that Lev Parnas and all the other people involved have never seen The Wire. Because they took copious notes on a motherfucking criminal conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally, like, just he's 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 on he's he's on the phone at the Ritz. He picks up the pen. He's just jotting things down on that piece of stationery. One of them was get rid of Lanny Davis. It, like, <laughs> it said nicely, like, nicely. Hey, hey, Lev, I have some bad news. Lanny Davis does not take social cues. <laughs> but also, like, Lev Parnas is the Forrest Gump of corruption. He, yeah. there's photos of him with Rudy. There's photos of him with Mike Huckabee. There's photos of him in the White House with Trump. I mean, he with. Uh, uh, with McCarthy, uh, the the leader in the House. I mean, this guy is actually everywhere. And didn't Hyde show up? And he's ready up? to cooperate, and he's ready to talk. Yeah. And didn't Hyde show up at Mar-a-Lago and make a scene? Yes, he did. I think it yeah. was Doral or Doral. Doral. Yeah. Oh, Doral. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, he showed up, and he's he like Tommy said, he's not. Uh, I don't think he's well. Yeah, I mean, it's just also like the quality of people that Donald Trump has sort of brought into American politics. Yeah, well, uh, next, next, and, and, and if there's a term too, uh, Hyde will be the Secretary of State, so Ooh, <laughs> watch, watch out. Look forward to that. Yeah. And um, also, you know, I, I gotta say, I'm not sure if this has been good for the Ritz-Carlton Vienna. <laughs> <laughs> we'll think you know, on, on, you know, no one, I mean, obviously it's not the most important piece of this, but I'm sure it's a beautiful place that doesn't want to be associated yeah, with this not scandal. Since, not since Elliot Spitzer has a uh, hotel been so defiled by a politician. Yeah. The Ritz-Carlton has been involved in multiple impeachments. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Also, Monica Lewinsky was questioned by oh, God. Uh, Ken Starr. Oh, nice. that's right. At the, at the, uh, at the Pentagon, Pentagon City, City Mall. They <laughs> yeah. fucking scared the shit out of her there. Assholes. It is a great mall. All right. Let's talk about last night's debate. <laughs> is just, it? I'm standing up for the mall. Sean. <laughs> All right. It's a great mall. <laughs> no one fights for the awesome blossom, the mall, and other. No one likes a mall like me. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France. Which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Let's talk about last night's debate, which was hosted by CNN and the Des Moines Register at Drake University in Des Moines. It was the final debate before the Iowa caucuses and the smallest one yet, featuring Biden, Bernie, Warren, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Steyer. So we're going to talk about some of the most uh, notable moments in this debate. But what did you guys think overall? Um, It seemed to me that they were all trying to balance the need to draw contrast with their opponents with the need to avoid seeming nasty, uh, which doesn't usually help you with Iowans who don't like candidates to be nasty and also who are thinking about who their second choice is. But what did you guys think? Some debates make me feel great. <laughs> and some debates make me feel terrible. This one left me emotionless. Emotionless. Yeah. Dan was emotionless. Love it. What'd you think? Yeah, I mean, other than uh, Sanders drawing a very stark contrast on the Iraq vote with Biden, there weren't that many true contrast drawn throughout the debate so i do think that's right they yeah i had the same sort of dull feeling that dan did honestly 
Um, two thoughts. One, if you want to understand why uh, being nice in the Iowa caucuses is important and why second choices matter, listen to episode two of my Iowa series. On the ground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. America mm-hmm. Feed. Mm-hmm. But the, the gist of it is uh, if your candidate doesn't have a 15% support in a precinct location, you have to go to your second choice. And so you don't want people to hate you. You want to be their second choice. Uh, that's why it was a nicer debate. I agree with you. That the contrasts were, were relatively substantive. Um, big picture, I was glad that foreign policy came up a lot in this debate because that's where the president actually has the most leeway. Once we got into the uh, the taped portion of the debate about Medicare for all, my, <laughs> I, was, I was less excited, but uh, the, the beginning was exciting. The beginning was a world of delight. It, I honestly, yeah, I was in heaven. All right, so let's let's start with the toughest and most uncomfortable exchange of the evening, which came when Bernie was asked about a 2018 meeting where he reportedly told Elizabeth Warren that he did not believe a woman could win the presidency. Uh, Sanders has denied the report, while Warren has stated that he did in fact say this. They were both pressed on it last night, and things got a little heated. Uh, Let's play the clip. So Senator Sanders, Senator Sanders, I do want to be clear here. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. That is correct. Senator Warren, what did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? I disagreed. Bernie is my friend, and I am not here to try to fight with Bernie. But look, this question about whether or not a woman can be president has been raised, and it's time for us to attack it head on. Um, And I think the best way to talk about who can win is by looking at people's winning record. So can a woman beat Donald Trump? Look at the men on this stage. Collectively, they have lost 10 elections. The only people on this stage who have won every single election that they've been in are the women, Amy and me. person on this stage who has beaten an incumbent Republican any time in the past 30 years is me. And here's what I know. The real danger that we face as Democrats is picking a candidate who can't pull our party together or someone who takes for granted big parts of the Democratic constituency. We need a candidate who will excite all parts of the Democratic Party, bring everyone in, and give everyone a Democrat to believe in. That's my plan, and that is why I'm going to win. Okay. Uh, So we heard... Uh, Warren's response. Um, what did you guys think of first what Bernie, how Bernie responded to this and then and then Warren's? First of all, just on what Warren said, I thought it was really smart. I thought it was smart because, you know, it takes something that is really a debate about her liabilities, right? About whether, a, a, you know, whether she as a woman can win, right? Which is what, what the core of this question. And she says, A, that she can win. And B, I think she makes uh, her best offensive argument for her electability, which is, you know, we've talked a lot about the Democratic nominee needing to be someone who can bring the various factions of the Democratic Party to the table. And she's, you know, in some way implying like, look, you have Bernie who appeals to the left but may struggle with moderates. You have Biden who uh, appeals to moderates and may struggle with the left. Well, uh, uh, I am somebody who it was can... certainly an and it was an oblique shot at Pete and who Pete takes taking African-Americans, uh, African-Americans for take for granted. Yeah. And she's saying, I am somebody who can bring all these different factions together and the person who can do that best uh is the best person in position to win. So I thought that was very smart. You know, that said, you know, we have now have 
Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, I think two people that are both uh, thought of as people with uh, who are honest, people who who pol- who have integrity to their politics and the way that they conduct their campaigns, disagreeing about a just a fact about what took place in that meeting, and you know that disagreement. Uh, uh, you know, she can say, you know, this is <laughs> she is saying, you know, Bernie is my friend and I don't want to dwell on this. Bernie can say Elizabeth Warren is my friend. and I don't want to dwell on this. But they're both basically saying that the other person is not being honest. I do wonder if the the truth is that these are two people honestly recounting what they believe took place and simply having a disagreement as to the actual words Bernie used in that moment. And it is a shame that it has led to such acrimony online, because, again, these are two of these are the two most progressive members of the United States Senate who, uh, in any other race, if they weren't a part of it themselves, would be for for the other. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a ton of science on the fact that, one, we have terrible memories. We think we have good memories. We do not, even in important moments. And we all tend to interpret different events differently. So both can sincerely think they're telling the truth here. I- I'm really struck by the fact that there's a lot of people, including reporters, who are just asserting as a fact that Warren's campaign leaked this story about this conversation because they wanted to talk about this issue yeah. of the debate. That is, A, it's not backed up by any sourcing that I've seen. B, it is completely illogical to suggest that Warren would want to have an electability conversation that can only hurt her and Amy Klobuchar in the in the last weeks of a campaign. So I think people need to stop asserting that bullshit. She, especially since it's a conversation she's been studiously avoiding for yes. the entire campaign, as Rebecca Traster pointed out in her excellent piece about this that I in the cut that I suggest you all go read yesterday. It's just it may, if someone did leak it from her campaign, that person did something pretty stupid. Yeah. And they're a pretty smart campaign. So I, I, I don't know why you would leak it. Right. And I also say, like, I think that Warren handled it masterfully. That answer where she roped in Klobuchar was, it, it seemed big. It was funny. It was poignant. And also probably will help her get some of those uh, second choice voters from the Klobuchar team if they are uh, not viable. Bernie, in some ways, had the best talking point about how a woman can win because he was just like, Hillary got three million more votes than Trump. Of course, a woman could win. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. I wish people would mention that. So like we almost got out of the woods on this. And then Bernie kind of well actually Warren uh, about the statistic about, you know, who had won in the past 30 years. And that was a little bit weird. But 30 years inclusive or 30 years not inclusive. Are you including this year and the first year? You know yeah, what I mean? It was I don't like, think it helped. It was weird. <laughs> but like, I think Bernie legitimately did not hear that part of Warren's answer. Oh, he was so just he like, was just like, yeah, I defeated an incumbent. You didn't give me credit for that. Online, that transition to the difference between 30 years and 29 years and nine months. Which <laughs> Honestly, is, uh, I tried to avoid, uh, except this morning when you said Twitter is fucking awful this morning. Yeah. Then I went and looked, but I try, I tried to avoid it all last night and I have muted so many of those people over the last months that I'll tell you my Twitter experience is a lot better. <laughs> but yeah, it was pretty bad. I uh, agree, certainly, that I don't think Elizabeth Warren's campaign leaked this. It's just, regardless of, even if you think that it's, even if it's discordant with how she has run her campaign, just for people who have leaked lots of like done things like this in campaigns where you try to lay out an attack or make a strategic move, a CNN online story is not the way in which you would do that, right? It just has no, it it has all the makings of a story that has been circulating for a long time, and finally some very good reporters got enough people to confirm it to put it into print, and then we were off to the races. Yeah, credit, maybe at credit a moment, MJ Lee, right? Yeah, and maybe at a moment where there was a little bit of tension between them, and somebody was mad in the yeah. heat of a moment. Yeah, and totally, one hundred percent, right. right. I think a couple things. I think it is, Tommy, your point about how two people can remember two things differently 
is exactly right. I also think it's very possible for a man to say something that would be and not understand how it could be interpreted by a woman. Right. Yeah. And I think that is very, I think that's very likely what happened in this situation. The other point is, I don't know whether Elizabeth Warren wanted this conversation or not, but I am glad we're having it because it has been the unspoken elephant in the room for this entire fucking election where everywhere you go, you talk to people who like they ask this question, people who are, and this this is not that the people themselves do not think a woman should be president. They think the mythological group of voters in Wisconsin who will decide the president don't think a woman could be president. So therefore, we have to reverse engineer our nominee from that process. And that has been hanging over Warren's campaign from the very beginning. Everything about Warren's Medicare for all electability issues was a proxy for this conversation because Bernie Sanders has all the same Medicare for all potential political vulnerability issues that Warren does. And we never talk about it. We talk very specifically about Warren. And so, like, let's have the conversation, make the case against it. Everything that we saw in 2018, put aside 2016, which is a very good point that Bernie made, 2018 suggests that perhaps the best candidate to mobilize an electorate that wins in the post-Trump realignment of the Democratic Party would be a woman. You know, Dave Wasserman, of who you talked to in the wilderness, has made the point repeatedly that a moderate woman from the South or the, or the Midwest would be the ideal, most electable Democratic candidate, based on what he knows about the voters you need to persuade. Yeah, he thinks like Stacey Abrams could be the most electable yep. candidate for that for those reasons. No, I, look, I I agree with this all, and I think it reminded me a little bit of right. You don't want to have this conversation, right? Like like to Tommy's point, I don't think the campaign wanted to leak this and have a conversation about can a woman be elected president, right? But it reminded me a little of. Obama and the race speech and Reverend Wright, right? Did we want those tapes of Reverend Wright well, to come out? Dan leaked them. We, <laughs> we certainly did not. But after everything was said and done and Obama gave that race speech, I think we all agreed it was an important moment and he needed to have, he needed to make that speech eventually. If he was going to be the first black president elected of the United States, he needed to take on the issue of race directly. And I think even though she has avoided it through most of the campaign, what she did last night was very effective in making the case that yes, and and like you said, Tommy, Bernie did too. Yes, Hillary Clinton won 3 million more votes than Donald Trump. Elizabeth Warren saying, yes, look at all the women that won in 2018. Look at the only two people on the stage who have beaten Republicans, beaten Republican incumbents, and the men lost 10 elections uh, combined. You know, I think it's, it, it's probably good that she took it on. The one thing I was curious about is we didn't, we never got to the bottom of what was actually said, which I thought the moderators would try to do. The fact that Abby Phillip, one of the moderators, after after Bernie denied it, then went to Warren and said, so what did you say when he said a woman couldn't win? As opposed to asking Elizabeth Warren, Bernie says he didn't say it. What did he say? That was a poorly worded question. And Bernie World is very upset about that. And I, I, I think I, they should I understand yeah. why they're upset about that. I, I, Abby Phillip did not. She, I, I think she handled that wrong as the moderator. It didn't bother me. Well, she just she accept she basically said, well, yeah, Bernie, you're just lying. She accepted. Yeah, oh, that's fair. Yeah, that's yeah. what yeah. she did by saying that. Like yeah. second, it was it would be one thing if like just the that's just fair. the way yeah, it yeah, played right. out. With Bernie was like, I didn't say that. And she's like, Elizabeth Warren, what is your response to the thing Bernie said? Yeah, because everyone yeah, laughed. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was, oh wow, right, right. it was cheeky. Yeah, uh, I, it was what, what I it seemed cheeky to me. But uh, you know, like the truth is, I don't think it really matters exactly what was said. You know, what what I thought was so good about what Warren said into the Tracer piece that is. To talk about the fears of misogyny and sexism preventing a woman from winning is to add to the perception that misogyny and sexism will prevent a woman from winning. And it is just to be Elizabeth Warren is to be trying to defeat the fears that a woman can't win while combating 
the latent, ingrained, deep misogyny that makes it harder for a woman to win every day, that to have moments in which you're seen as an intellectual leader, uh, brave, courageous, smart, gritty, to have like positive attributes given to you is the threshold is raised so much higher for a woman. And to be embroiled in a scandal about your authenticity and your ability to win and your to be a leader, uh, you know, to be to be seen as flawed is so much lower. And the difficulty of navigating that has just been so central to her incredibly smart and deft way of managing not just this issue, but every issue throughout the campaign. It really sucks that she both has to deal with sexism and now is getting attacked for mentioning what she thinks happened in this conversation. That is bullshit and it's unfair. Uh, it was little noticed, but I thought Amy Klobuchar actually had a very funny line at the end of that segment where she said every opponent she beat got out of politics after the election. So how about that precedent for Donald Trump? It was like very well done. It also, by the way, say, talking about all the men who had lost a, a combination of 10 elections, exposed something that we've talked about before in this Democratic primary, which is the concept of electability, while real and important to a lot of voters because Donald Trump is president, is incredibly hard to measure. And this field, who we have left, doesn't have a lot of people who can run around saying, oh, well, I'm electable because look at all the elections that I won. Yeah, I mean, I mean in the last... <laughs> like Bernie Sanders has been winning in Vermont and lost to Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden won by being on the ticket with uh, with Barack Obama and then being senator from Delaware for a long time. Pete Buttigieg won a couple mayoral elections in South Bend. Like, that's... Yeah, I mean, in the, in the last debate... <laughs> Tom uh, Sires never won anything. Amy Klobuchar basically ripped Pete's arms from his body and started attacking them with him. And basically, the point that she was making is that if he was a woman... He probably wouldn't be on that stage. Yeah. And uh, just true. So first half of the debate we talked about was uh, very heavy on foreign policy. Right off the bat, Joe Biden was once again pressed on his 2003 vote in favor of the Iraq war, both by the moderators and by Bernie. Let's hear it. But what I understood from right away in terms of the war in Iraq, the difference here is that the war in Iraq turned out to be the worst foreign policy blunder in the modern history of this country. As Joe well knows, we lost 4,500 brave troops. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died. We have spent trillions of dollars on that endless war, money which should go into healthcare and education and infrastructure in this country. Joe and I listened to what Dick Cheney and George Bush and Rumsfeld had to say. I thought they were lying. I didn't believe them for a moment. I took to the floor. I did everything I could to prevent that war. Joe saw it differently. Vice President Biden. I was asked to bring 156,000 troops home from that war, which I did. I led that effort. It was a mistake to trust that they weren't going to go to war. They said they were not going to go to war. They said they were just going to get inspectors in. The world, in fact, voted to send inspectors in, and they still went to war. From that point on, I was in the position of making the case that it was a big, big mistake. And from that point on, I voted to, I, I moved to bring those troops home. So I, I thought that this was Biden's best answer on the issue because he acknowledged the mistake, tried to talk about the lessons that he learned from it. What did you think, Tommy? Um, so like big picture, you know, Bernie clearly best, obviously has the cleanest answer yes. on the Iraq war. And uh, it's also funny to think back to 2016 where foreign policy was seen as a weakness for him because he sounds very fluent on these issues. He makes a compelling case and he's done real work in the Senate since on war powers resolutions in Yemen and Iran that is impressive and he deserves credit for. I agree that I thought Biden's first answer 
uh, and calling the Iraq war a mistake. It was good. It was crisp. And then he pivoted to his relevant experience since then uh, under Obama and his family experience of having a son who served. I just don't know how voters feel about this issue and how salient this vote is all these years later. It was also interesting, by the way, to hear Bernie pressed on his vote for the war in Afghanistan and the fact that he recently said that was a mistake. I didn't realize he had said that. um, And I thought it, you know, maybe voters will watch that and think, well, this is a wash. I don't really know. But I'd love to see some research on it. Dan, what do you think? I thought it was Biden's best answer on this. And he has struggled from the very beginning on this as has everyone who voted for the war, right? Like we, forever. We, forever, right? We've been through that. We were through this with Kerry in 2004, Hillary Clinton 2008, Hillary Clinton 2016, Biden up until this point. And because the, the answer just seems so obvious, but people are so tortured over how they got that vote wrong and, the, and sort of the circumstances around that vote seem so far and now to the people who were there at the time. The answer is like, I got it wrong. Dis, dis, I learned lessons from it. Despite that, the most famous opponent of the war, Barack Obama, picked me to be his vice president, and then I led the effort to get us home. Like that, it's like, the, it's an obvious answer, and he has just struggled to get there, but he did it last night. I Like Tommy, I am just incredibly curious how much vote, I think the substantive fact that Bernie got this right and Biden got it wrong and other people got it wrong is very important because I worked in the Senate when this was all happening, and Bernie's position was very brave. And we were like, you just have to remember that America went fucking insane at that yeah, time. We scary. changed the name of French fries because we were pissed at the French. The Dixie Chicks were canceled before cancel culture was a thing. <laughs> if you spoke out in the slightest way, a right-wing propaganda, White House, supported by mainstream media, anvil fell on your head. And Bernie did the right thing there, and he should get credit for that. I do not know politically whether voters in Iowa, how they think about that in terms of whether they want to pick, was that, is, is that really matter that would prevent someone who might vote for Biden to vote for Biden? It's an open question. Yeah, I was watching for, to see which candidates would try to move the foreign policy debate forward from a vote in Iraq. And I think, you know, Biden did that a little bit. Eventually, Bernie got there on Iran. I thought Pete did a pretty good job with that during the foreign policy section. What do you think, Levin? No, I think that's right. I mean, I, my overall, I mean, I think what Dan said is 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 actually important. I do think sort of that we've been having you know, every Democratic candidate who voted for the war has been struggling with it. And I think one of the reasons that they've been struggling with it is that do you think a big part of this conversation is to look at not just who was right and who was brave and who was wrong and who didn't who went along with the decision, but also the context of the decision and, and what happened to this country after 9-11 and the kind of fever that took hold and what it meant and what we've learned from it. Because I do think that's a big part of what it means to learn from what happened in, in the year since 9-11. That said, you know, Pete did try to pitch forward on foreign policy, talk about cyber threats, talk about the way uh, the next president will um, inherit a bunch of uh, new and evolving challenges. But overall, I think one thing that was missing throughout the debate on this question and a bunch of other questions was taking uh, uh, cable news questions that were either designed to elicit conflict or they were just simply on the axis of what cable news talks about every day, uh, often framed uh, the way Republicans would frame it, and go bigger, talk about values, talk about principles, talk about what guides a president in making a decision to to use force or not use force, or on education, what the goals of education, on healthcare, uh, why this issue isn't so important, the pain that people feel, what have you. And so 
my feeling on this foreign policy debate, and I do think one reason I felt certainly like kind of a kind of dull feeling after the debate is too often questions were taken at face value. And I would just I was so longing for candidates to kind of step beyond that and and have a a greater sense of vision and heart and humanity and how they thought about these questions. I thought Bernie is usually pretty deft at doing that from a big picture values perspective. And then I think Pete Warren and Klobuchar sometimes are pretty deft at taking it to a more personal story or or personal stories to talk about people. Um, So there was another more policy-based issue that separated Warren and Sanders last night. Warren recently announced that she'd be supporting the USMCA, which is the trade deal to replace NAFTA. Uh, This is one of the biggest policy differences between her and Bernie. She defended her support of the deal, and Bernie took the opportunity to explain his opposition to it. Uh, Let's hear it. I wasn't here. I've been in Congress long enough to have voted against NAFTA, but I led the fight against the trade deal with Asia and the trade deal with Europe because I didn't think it was in the interests of the American people, the American workers, or environmental interests. But we have farmers here in Iowa who are hurting, and they are hurting because of Donald Trump's initiated trade wars. We have workers who are hurting because the agreements that have already been cut really don't have enforcement on workers' rights. This new trade deal is a modest improvement. Senator Sanders himself has said so. It will give some relief to our farmers. It will give some relief to our workers. I believe we accept that relief. We try to help the people who need help. And we get up the next day and fight for a better trade deal. We need a coherent trade policy. We need a policy that actually helps our workers, our farmers. We need them at the table, not just a trade policy written for big international companies. I'm ready to have that fight, but let's help the people Thank who you. need Thank you. Senator help. Sanders, right can you please respond to Senator Warren? Well, I think that... It is not so easy to put together new trade legislation. If this is passed, I think it will set us back a number of years. Senator Warren is right in saying we need to bring the stakeholders to the table. That is the family farmers here in Iowa and in Vermont and around the country. That is the environmental community. That is the workers. Uh, So Bernie is the only candidate to oppose the trade deal. Uh, Dan, uh, you also opposed the trade deal. Um, why do you think that everyone else, including Warren, came out in support for it? I believe that Warren substantively thinks this is the right thing to do. Because I don't understand the politics for her. I think Klobuchar thinks it's something the right thing to do. It's probably, on balance, in the short term at least, better for the people in Klobuchar's state than, and probably better for the people in Iowa than status quo. But I think that's the wrong question to have. I think the question is not, is this, is the USMCA better than NAFTA? Sure. I mean, if Sherrod Brown's for it, some of the the AFL-CAO's for it, some some individual unions may be against it, but is it better than that? Sure. But that's not the right test in my view. Substance, right? Politics is a different question. Substance, the test is, is the USMCA better than a deal that a President Sanders, Biden, Warren, Klobuchar, Buttigieg, Steyer would negotiate? in a year, a year from now. Because we went through this in 2007 with a bunch of Bush trade deals, which were not, they were not the worst trade deals, but they were not good. And we waited, the Democrats did not pass them, they controlled the House and the Senate, and waited for President Obama to renegotiate those on a better deal that was more favorable to workers and environmental standards. The fact that climate change is not mentioned in this deal sort of proves that point. So Jonathan Cohn uh, at HuffPo had a smart piece about this, I thought, which I agree with that um, 
This is also like the difference that there now is between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on Medicare for all, in that in both cases, she is focused on what can I do to deliver for people in the near term right now, as opposed to having an issue to fight about. And, you know, she brought up when she talked about healthcare last night, all the executive actions she was going to take to um, lower the cost of prescription drugs. She's now going to try to get a robust public option passed in her first year with 51 votes. She's got a plan to uh, eliminate student debt with an executive order. And I do think this is partly because having talked to all these voters for the wilderness too, one of the reasons people are so cynical and disappointed with government is that they can't remember any time that it's actually delivered for them. And, you know, I talked to Stacey Abrams about this and she said, you know, the low propensity voters, the people who don't vote often in Georgia, where I come from, their big problem is they come out, they vote once in a while, and then nothing changes and no one delivers anything for them. And I don't know if Elizabeth Warren is thinking about this or not, but one argument that I could see her making against Bernie Sanders as the primary continues is Bernie Sanders is very has been very successful at moving the debate. He has moved the debate on health care. He has moved the debate on climate and, and good for him for doing so. He hasn't done a lot over the many years in Congress to actually deliver on this kind of stuff. And she has and she's not only a progressive, but she has a plan to actually make it happen. Maybe, maybe she'll take that argument. Maybe she won't. But I think that your point about delivering now as opposed to winning another, you know, winning another fight to delay a policy or substantive benefit for the American people in order to win a political fight mm-hmm. is a very legitimate point. And I think if it was, let's say hypothetically, somehow Trump and the Democrats negotiated some sort of public option or yeah. legislation to strengthen the ACA. Even you do that, it. You yeah. do it. You have to do it. The benefits of trade are much more amorphous I and much more downstream. I do agree with that. I mean, look, I think both Bernie and Warren, though, go into this debate knowing that this is not like an easy win for either of them. Like the way they approached it. I mean, this Bernie Sanders, when he wants to, can be much tougher. I mean, what he said was, well, you're going to make it harder to do the new trade deal because this one has passed, which is a very. Partly um, because he had admitted it is a modest improvement, as she pointed out. And, and, you know, the debate as to whether you take a, a modest improvement Uh, now versus something better you can negotiate in the future is one of the central debates of politics over and over and over again. But it does seem like everyone on that stage recognized that the politics of this are pretty nuanced and difficult, and nobody is looking to really have a big fight about it. I think the politics in the Democratic primary are nuanced and difficult. I think the politics in the general election are quite simple, and Bernie's position is much stronger than everyone else's. Bernie has made the point about Biden and arguing against Biden's electability is that Trump can say Biden voted for NAFTA. He can't say that Bernie voted for NAFTA. I think that is also true here because, as we know from our own polling, Trump's support for a new NAFTA deal that is supported by the big drug companies, the Wall Street banks, other corporations, is a big net negative for him in battleground states like Wisconsin and Arizona. Bernie can make that case against him. The others can't. Bernie spoke pretty compellingly last night and several times about climate change as an existential threat. And him framing his opposition to USMCA around climate was smart and believable. And it made it seem like this was a good faith policy dispute. I thought in this exchange, I was grateful that Amy Klobuchar brought it back to Trump and started highlighting the ways Trump's trade policies have hurt real people in Iowa and have hurt people she knew. That was smart and important. To his credit, uh, Pete did a good job of bringing it back to Trump several times during the foreign policy discussion. He talked about Trump sending more troops to the Middle East, Trump, Trump lying about opposing the Iraq war. He talked about the need to renew the New START treaty. So I was just grateful to the candidates who remembered that 
we're going to run against Trump someday. Would have been nice if there was a little bit more of that. Yeah. If, if, you, if there was a Democratic Trump, it would be so clear what they would be doing, which is, which is worse than NAFTA. All the jobs are going to go away. Yeah, They're yeah. going to ruin the Midwest because the results are diffuse and hard to see. Yeah, that's right. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. So the moderators ended the debate by asking each candidate a question about their electability. Uh, I want to go through each of the candidates' answers, and then we can talk about sort of each of their overall debate performances uh, before we go. Uh, Let's start with Joe Biden. Vice President Biden, the eventual nominee will face President Trump, who has no problem mocking people, using insulting nicknames, slinging mud, and telling lies. The debate against him will make tonight's debate look like child's play. Are you prepared for that? I am prepared for that. Look, I've been the object of his affection now more than anybody else in the state. I've taken all the hits he can deliver, and I'm getting better in the polls, my going up. And by the way, I have overwhelming support from the African-American community, overwhelming, more than everybody else in this operation, number one. Number two, working-class people where I come from in Pennsylvania and the places I come from in Delaware, I have great support. I have support across the board, and I'm not worried about taking on Donald Trump at all. And with regard to the economy, I can hardly wait to have that debate with him. Where I come from, the neighborhoods I come from, they're in real trouble. Working class people and middle class people. When the middle class does well, working class has a way up and the wealthy do well. But what's happening now? They're being clobbered. They're being killed. They now have in a situation where if they, the vast majority believe their children will never reach the stage that they read, they, they've reached an economic security. We, and I love that debate because the American public is getting clobbered. The wealthy are the only ones doing well, period. I'm looking forward to the economic debate. So uh, it was, a, I thought, a very good response to a fairly weird question, like, what are you going to do when Trump's mean to you uh, in terms of electability? But um, what did you guys think overall of, of Joe Biden's you know, debate performance and sort of where he stands at the end of the debate? I think he came out of the debate right where he went in, which is still the front runner for the nomination and probably by a significant amount with the giant caveat of what happens in Iowa could change that. Huge. And people, <laughs> and he... I don't, it's, I don't know I'm not saying he is lucky, but in debate after debate after debate, people preview an idea that they are going to go after Biden. They're going to take him on on his record. They're going to take him on his electability. And it never happens. Other than the No one, bankruptcy hit that Warren had sort of previewed. No Social Security hit that Bernie had sort of previewed. Just not, no one, except for the Iraq thing, no one really challenged Joe Biden. Yeah. And that, and that is Biden will benefit tremendously from that because that is the last debate between now and Iowa. I thought in that answer itself, we saw the Biden that we have seen before, before this campaign, which is the happy warrior Biden and the one who is very, very passionate about middle and working class people in this country. Like that answer is one that we have heard a thousand times in a White House economic meeting whenever someone's putting forward some, you know, I'm sure well-meaning but egg-headed policy. And Biden will very passionately make the case, like, how does this help the people where I'm from? How does this help the people of Claymont, Delaware, where he grew up? 
And that's the Biden who is that it, that is that Biden that is carrying the electability hopes of a lot of these primary voters thus far. What do you think, Lovett? You know, it was, I think, I think it was a good debate for him. I think we see the strengths and weaknesses of Biden again and again. Um, the strengths are, are what he laid out in that answer. The weaknesses are, I think, in the way in which that answer is still not that smooth. You know, I mean, we're, we're now, I think, accustomed to grading Biden on a curve. And, and, and the curve is, did he get to the end of his answer, you know, without anything making us like, truly uncomfortable or hard to follow or incoherent? And he didn't. He ma- delivered the answer, I think, reasonably well. Um, that said, on the whole, you know, there is a kind of absence of the joyful warrior throughout this debate. There's a kind of um, uh, uh, darkness to his presentation um, in the debates that I don't think is as evident in the campaign trail or um, in the sort of the the person that that had, that got him the name recognition that le- made him the person that's at the top of the polls. But uh, yeah, that's it. Tommy, what do you think? I thought he was very good. It's one of his better performances. And look, I mean, the headline coming out of this thing is like, did what did Warren and Bernie talk about at their non-handshake after the debate? It's either the storyline is largely a fight about between Bernie and Warren, and that's a win for Biden. Yeah. I, I, I think one of the other reasons that he was fortunate that no one came after him is that at these debates, Biden is usually at his worst when he is attacked because then he gets defensive. And when he gets defensive, then he can sort of go on and on. Uh, and that's when he's made some of his mistakes in these debates. And because he really wasn't that defensive or because when Bernie challenged him on Iraq, he actually had his best answer. He sort of made it through this time. I agree that I, I, the only thing with Biden is we were talking about this last night. I remember him in 08 debates um, both in the primary and then when he was VP in his debates with Sarah Palin, again in his debates with Paul Ryan. And the, the, the defining characteristic of Joe Biden in those debates was that he was the happy warrior, emphasis on happy, right? Because he certainly was a warrior in this last question when he talked about fighting for the middle class. But I, I, I would love to see in future debates Joe Biden look like he, I'm sure he's not having a great time <laughs> up there who is frankly who is right but look like Andrew he's have, look like he's having a better time smile a little more crack a joke a little more you know like and, and Bernie's pretty pretty good at no, doing that for, for doing good at doing that for a grumpy old man <laughs> you know um, but Bernie Bernie can do that pretty well and I, I just I know Biden has that in him I would just love to see it a little bit more. yeah there's that you know, he did it at the uh, at the, that Iowa the uh, LJ speech. He he did it. It's, it's been his closing at a few of these things. And when he does it well, I do think it's his best argument, which is he kind of ties the soul of America part of his argument to this uh, hype speech. He sort of like tries yeah. to hype people up, like come on, let's get up, let's like look not. And I do think I do think that sort of the 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 water we're swimming in throughout this campaign is a feeling of decline, a feeling of loss, a feeling of pain, a feeling of not knowing your country, a feeling of seeing, a feeling kind of, I mean, for, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, white liberal voters who for the first time in their lives are, ex- are experiencing what it's like to feel disenfranchised and they hate it and they're not, and uh, uh that kind of get up and go spirit that he can bring when matched with him being a happy warrior is I think Biden at his best and helps him overcome some of the limitations he has as a candidate. Uh, Okay, let's hear from Bernie. Senator Sanders, you call yourself a democratic socialist, but more than two thirds of voters say they are not enthusiastic about voting for a socialist. Doesn't that put your chances of beating Donald Trump at risk? Nope, not at all. And that is because the campaign that we are gonna run will expose the fraudulency 
of who Donald Trump is. Donald Trump is corrupt, he is a pathological liar, and he is a fraud. Now, when Trump talks about socialism, what he talks about is giving hundreds of billions of dollars in tax breaks and subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. Donald Trump is a businessman, received $800 million in tax breaks and subsidies to build luxury housing. My democratic socialism says health care is a human right. We're going to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. We're going to make public colleges and universities tuition-free. We're going to have a Green New Deal and create up to $20 million saving the planet for our children and our grandchildren. We are going to take on the greed and corruption of the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance company. That is what democratic socialism is about, and that will win this election. Will it, Dan? Like, as we have talked about in 08, is it possible for an African-American to win the White House? Is it the conversation we just had about whether a woman can win? This is also an untested proposition, right? This is a person who identifies as a socialist, which is a term, even if the the policies that Bernie advocates are quite popular across party lines in a lot of places and a lot of the people in your focus groups believe in and support. Also could easily be labeled democratic policies and progressive policies and not socialist policies as Bernie himself tried to lay out in a speech a while back when he said that it's just like FDR and yet for some reason calls them democratic socialists. Yes. And so like I think that I think that answer was fine. I think the his definition of democratic socialism is probably the best way you can deal with that. His critique of Trump that Trump actually engages in social in corporate socialism by bailing out corporations and all of that. I think it's a good argument. I just yeah. want to see more. Of, I would like to hear more from Bernie in his campaign about how they are going to navigate several billion dollars and a right wing media machine that is going to try to otherize him around this term. And I think this was the beginning of that conversation. Electability, like as we said, no one knows what electability means. I want to hear candidates. The only way that I can possibly interpret is hearing candidates' plans for how they plan to navigate the challenges they may have. We heard that from Warren on that question, and I want to hear more from Bernie on it. I thought it was interesting. To me, it was like, you know, Trump in 2016, he'll say it now. There's this sort of quality where the the version of it is that, yeah, I'm a greedy sleaze, but I'll be a greedy sleaze for you. Mm. And this is the mirror image of that, which is to say... uh, Trump is a socialist for corporations and the wealthy and people he knows, and I'll be a socialist for you. It is the kind of mirror image of the Trump argument. And in that way, I found it interesting and compelling. Um, beyond that, I, you know, I, I have the same kind of uncertainty around these questions uh, that we all do. But um, I found it to be a fair and compelling argument. What do you think, Tom? It, it, it's a very untested proposition. It's a thing that electability concerns about every single candidate on that stage make me quite nervous. And this is one that's gotten somehow the least discussion. Um, I think that if Elizabeth Warren were really looking to throw a punch about electability, she could have tried to drill him on this. She notably did not. Uh, I think we are whistling past the graveyard if we don't vet these issues out in the primary. So I hope it is discussed uh, in a bigger way. But, you know, Bernie's betting on the fact that he can bring in new voters and young voters and build a big new coalition. And if he is the nominee, my God, I hope he is right. And I'll do everything I can to support him. But you're going to have to prove it by winning. And, I, I, you look, I know that 
some folks on the left will say, well, Donald Trump and the Republicans are going to call Democrats, all Democrats socialists. They've called us all socialists for decades. That is true, but it's a little different when you say, I'm not a socialist. And when you say, yeah, he's right, I am a socialist, <laughs> but I'm a democratic socialist and that's better. I mean, look, I, you know, I sat in these four focus groups and there was mixed reviews here in, in Wisconsin and in Milwaukee with the Obama Trump voters and with some Democrats in Philadelphia. They did not care about democratic socialism. They, 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 one of them actually said, I don't care what you call yourself. Like, I like your policies. I like your policies. So that's good. In Florida, in Miami, when the group was primarily, um, you know, these were sort of disaffected voters who had sat home. They were primarily black and Latino. There were a number of immigrants in that group. And they were very, very concerned about socialism, partly because a couple of them had come from socialist countries. And they said it, it, was, a, it was horrible in this country. And you try to explain to them the democratic socialism. They don't care about all that. <laughs> they just socialism is a word that carries quite a connotation in this country because of history. And you can explain the differences for sure. And a lot of college educated liberals will understand those differences for sure. The question is, what happens with those voters I talked to in Miami in the Arizona group, which was Romney Clinton voters. They were very upset with socialism. They didn't like it at all. So I think it's something that has to navigate. And like, like you said, Elizabeth Warren, some of these other people have been dealing with their electability concerns and Bernie Sanders has not really addressed it. This has been an unexamined question because in 2016, the consensus of the media the entire time was Bernie was never going to win. So what was the point? And, right. and a lot of establishment folks thought Bernie was never going to win. So why poke the bear here? Right. And then this time, Bernie, up until very recently, had been sort of unfairly and inaccurately written off as, look, he's polling below where he was in 2016. It's either going to be Biden or Warren or Pete, Bernie, and then he had his health issues. But now he is surging here or has strengthened at the end and is a very, very, very legitimate contender. And you could argue in some cases maybe the favorite to navigate the next part of the calendar and be the nominee. And I think that question is going to come up and his campaign is going to have to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, Let's hear from Elizabeth Warren. Senator Warren, what do you say to voters who like your policies, but they're worried they will scare away swing voters you need to win this race in November? So I was born and raised in Oklahoma. I have three older brothers who are all retired, who are all back there still. And two of my three brothers are Republicans. And sure, there are a lot of things we disagree on, and we can take to our corners and do the Democratic-Republican talking points. But the truth is, there's a whole lot we agree on. You know, my brothers are just furious over Chevron and Eli Lilly and Amazon that our giant corporations make billions of dollars in taxes, uh, make billions of dollars in profits and pay nothing in taxes. My brothers say, I don't get this. I have to pay my taxes. Somebody has to keep the roads paved and the schools open and pay for our defense. They understand that we have an America right now that's working great for those at the top. It's just not working for anyone else. We have a chance to unite, unite as Democrats, but also with independents and Republicans who are sick of living in a country that's working great for the politicians that are taking the money. It's working great for the lobbyists. It's working great for the corporate executives. It's just not working for everyone else. I'm building the grassroots movement, leading the fight. We're going to make this America work for everyone else. That is how we're going to beat Donald Trump. Tommy, what do you think about that uh, electability argument from Warren? I think it's strong. I mean, look, all of them are untested, but she makes a compelling case for herself. Yeah. 
It was pretty much the argument she gave me on um, on Pod Save America uh, a couple episodes ago. She's been this is her argument on on electability. She talks about her brother. She talks about sort of building a coalition of people against corruption and special interests, which I think is probably the best way to go. An argument she used in the last debate that's like puts this on a more finer point is the best person to take on a corrupt president is someone who's willing to fight corruption, and that I think is the shorthand version of that answer. Um, that is her bet like that's the why her part right everything else there other than the brothers is something that certainly bernie and some other folks on stage who have been on stage could make that case i think the part that she can uniquely do because she's made it a bigger part of her campaign although it's gotten sort of washed away in the sea of medicare for all discussion is she has the most aggressive anti-corruption plan of anyone in this race and it's just, i think you remember when you talked to her you talked to her and mm-hmm. when tommy talked to her in the Pots of america it was what is your first piece of legislation Mm. Was it going to be the wealth tax? Was yeah. it going to be Medicare for all? Was it going to be Green New Deal? No. It was her corruption plan because she believed that would make all the subsequent pieces yeah. more interesting. And that is her theory of change. And it also can be her theory of electability. Uh, let's hear from Pete. Mayor Buttigieg, you say you've had trouble earning the support of black voters because you're unknown. But you've been campaigning for a year now, and polling shows you with next to no black support, support that you'll need in order to beat Donald Trump. Is it possible that black voters have gotten to know you and have simply decided to choose another candidate? The black voters who know me best are supporting me. It's why I have the most support in South Bend. It's why among elected black officials in my community who have gotten into this race, by far most of them are supporting me. And now nationally, I am proud that my campaign is co-chaired by a member of the Congressional Black Caucus and to have support right here in Iowa, from some of the most recognizable black elected leaders from Mayor Hart of Waterloo to former Representative Barry in Black Hawk County. Now, the biggest mistake we could make is to take black votes for granted, and I never will. The reason I have the support I do is not because any voter thinks that I'm perfect. It's because of the work that we have done facing some of the toughest issues that communities can, not from the luxury of a, of a debate or a television panel or a committee room, but on the ground, issues from poverty to justice in policing. And I'm proud to say we've been nationally recognized for our work as a race-informed city on delivering greater economic justice, that we have reduced use of force by leading the region in transparency around the use of force in policing. Of course, there is a much longer way to go in my community and around the country. But I will be a president whose personal commitment is to continue doing this work. What do you think, Lovett? I think it's the best answer he's given on this question. And I did appreciate the way the question was asked because there has been something a little bit patronizing in the way Pete has answered them before that, oh, they haven't gotten to know me yet. Uh, and it sort of put him in a position to make more of a direct case. Uh, you know, that said, this has been dogging him. It will continue to dog him. You know, both Pete and Warren have sort of political challenges to their electability case. And so they tend to redound to a, an argument that is rhetorical. That's around the case that they're going to make. Right. So Pete has seen this as a huge liability for him. So when he makes an argument about electability, he makes a rhetorical argument about his contrast versus Trump. Uh, Elizabeth Warren faces questions about her electability. And so she makes a rhetorical argument about how strong the case she's going to make against Trump. Biden and Bernie, uh, opposite to that, Biden just flat out walks through the demographics and says, here's how I'm doing in these demographics. Here's how I'm going to win. And Bernie talks about bringing in new voters and makes a more kind of on the ground political argument uh, about how he's going to overcome some of the liabilities you're talking about. Um, but on that on that answer, I thought it was uh, 
a new a, a better answer than he's given in the past. Anyone else have thoughts on sort of Pete's overall performance? We haven't talked about that too much. Pete speaks in paragraphs. You know, I mean, everything is a is a well thought through, complete thought. There are dependent clauses. There are uh, emotional uh, portions. The like the risk with that is it can sometimes sound very practiced. The benefit is that he gives great answers and makes important points that other people are forgetting to make. This is completely uh, superficial. I thought he looked very young last night. I've never felt that way about him in a debate before. Maybe it was too much makeup or something or the haircut, but yeah. I don't know. And then like Tom Steyer, funnily, kept trying to jab Pete over random things about his age. Uh, uh, I, I trade, he might have dogged him on something. So um, maybe that highlighted it for me. I thought Pete, in his electability case, got back to first principles which is he is the candidate who represents the biggest change from the status quo that is Donald Trump. His life choices, his experience, his age, his background, where in the country he's from. And over the last several months, the campaign had taken that Pete electability argument, transitioned it to, I'm the most talented moderate candidate in the field. And I am more electable because I'm for a public option, not Medicare for all. But his best argument is that he is the embodiment of change. He is different than the other people in the top four because they are politicians in a more typical sense with longer records and that he is sort of the high variance candidates, the replica versus the replacement theory where Pete is, at least among this group, the biggest contrast to Trump. I agree with that. And I think he has to, in these next 20 something days, make that case quite a bit more since he got a Des Moines Register poll that wasn't as great for him because he, you know, he had a little bit of a slide there. And I think he was steady last night, but he's at the point where I think he needs to get something going <laughs> and, uh, and ha- have a moment or two uh, in these next couple of weeks because, um, you know, in, in order to win the caucus. He's going to have to stay to himself. Well, that's, yeah. That's, that's right. He's like, yeah. witnesses, five witnesses. <laughs> Hunter <laughs> Biden testified. Joe Biden testified. Yeah. He's yeah. been going so, for a month. It'd be so funny if you put out a statement calling on Hunter Biden to testify. <laughs> 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 uh, love, the other just, one thing also just to remember too, like, I, Pete is so smart. Like, he's on this stage. He's made it this far because he's very, very smart. And I think to Tommy's point, sometimes he has the right words. He has the right thing to say. He has the right contrast. But sometimes it just feels a little bit rehearsed. Uh, Amy Klobuchar. Senator Klobuchar, you're pitching yourself as a practical candidate who can get things done. And even tonight, you've dismissed some of the ideas that are offered in this primary as pipe dreams. How are you going to inspire Democratic voters with a message of pragmatism? (coughs) Our voters, actually all Americans, have seen now a number of years of a guy that has, I think, told over 15,000 lies. Uh, He is someone that literally has a rap sheet of divisive rhetoric. And I think what Americans want is something different. I am going to be able to stand across from him on that debate stage and say to my friends in Iowa, the Midwest is not flyover country for me. I live here. I'm going to be able to look at him and say, you've treated these workers and farmers like poker chips. For me, these are my friends and these are my neighbors. I'm going to be able to look at him and say, you know what? You got $413 million over the course of your career. That's how you built your fortune. And what I'm going to say is this. My grandpa worked 1,500 feet underground in the iron ore mine, saved money in a coffee can in the basement to send my dad to a two-year community college. That's my family trust. And when you have been given an opportunity like that, you go into the world not with a sense of entitlement, Donald Trump, Trump, but with a sense of obligation. 
what you guys think of that? It it was similar to Pete's case about yeah. about the Midwest too. She made the most like Iowa specific case throughout the debate, I thought, and in her electability point there at the end. I mean, I think Klobuchar had a good debate last night. She didn't have a game-changing debate, and I think she probably needs to... I, I was expecting her to do a little better in that most recent Des Moines Register poll than what was it, 7%. I kind of thought Amy might have jumped to 10 and she's going to need to really double or triple her support to actually get delegates out of the caucus process, or she needed to have a big night last night. I don't know that that happened. Um, I also talked to a couple of random Iowans who thought that the constant talking over the moderators came off as rude. Hmm. Uh, Are you conducting a focus group as we do this? Like... I, Dan, I got sources all over the place, man. <laughs> In campaigns outside, I'm a, you know, I'm a renaissance man. He's connected to the 515. But it's just a funny thing. That it's, just funny, it's a funny thing people take away from these events, right? I mean, the big, the, the cable news brouhaha last night was what happened in that little five-second conversation after the debate, not what was discussed in. And you talked to a couple of Iowans, and it's like these stylistic things. That I'm really so proud of us for them. not talking about that Yeah, because we forgot. We still haven't. <laughs> All still right. Haven't. We, uh, could, we could. Can I say one more thing about yeah, Klobuchar? Yeah. Is I think Klobuchar is perhaps the most strategic debater of all of them. She comes in with a plan. She does not care what the question is. She doesn't care what the dynamics are. She is going to execute her plan. Yeah. She's going to tell her story. She's going to draw the contrast. Debate decides. coach's dream. She, I mean, really, like, I think, <laughs> and like, I, I agree with Tommy. I don't think she had the game-changing moment that a candidate who was polling so far behind the top group needed, but just she's very good in this format. It's, you know, it's fine. I, I actually think Klobuchar, it's, it's actually one reason it's quite, useful to see her is I do think she is really strong in these debates and she does have a plan and she does she does execute on and, and even in the last debate she did even better but the fact that it hasn't resonated in the polls I think just speaks to how hard it's been for someone to be an alternative to Biden in the race and why so many people uh, that were on that stage in the in you know three four debates ago aren't there anymore not by not for lack of talent or even for lack of a strategy but because simply Joe Biden has held that moderate vote so tightly for this entire campaign, no matter how well Amy Klobuchar has performed. Last but not least, Tom Steyer. Mr. Steyer, you've spent more than $100 million of your own dollars on television ads. How do you convince voters that you're more than just your money? Look, we know how Donald Trump is going to run for president. He's going to run on the economy. He's already told Americans last month in Florida, you don't like me, and I don't like you, but you're all going to vote for me because the Democrats are going to destroy the economy in 15 minutes if they get in control. So let's be clear. I started a business by myself in one room. I inherit, didn't inherit a penny from my parents. I spent 30 years building that business into a multi-billion dollar international business. Then I walked away from it and took the giving pledge and started organizing coalitions of ordinary Americans to take on unchecked corporate power. But whoever is going to take, beat Mr. Trump is going to have to beat him on the economy. And I have the experience and the expertise to show that he's a fake there and a fraud. Look, Mayor Pete has three years as an analyst at McKinsey. I have 30 years of international business experience. I can beat Trump on the economy. We're going to have to beat him on the economy. And I look forward to taking him down in the fall on the debate stage. I was too distracted last night by uh, Tom Steyer's eyes just boring into my fucking soul. <laughs> Who told him to stare at the camera like that? It's weird. Worst advice. But then I, I rewatched the debate this morning uh, and half watched, mostly listened, and actually thought he had like a, some sneaky good points along the way. He had some some 
moments that exposed him as a, a very new candidate. Like the, the one of the commander in chief questions, his response was like, I did a lot of business travel. And like, I don't know that hitting diamond on Delta is going to, you know, <laughs> I miss that. Oh, that's like, not, that's you know, have the nuclear codes. But um, I mean, you in, know, our, in our defense, Obama did argue about, did point out he lived in Indonesia as a small child once it, and did some more questions. And, and <laughs> I, I also remember staffing him in an interview where he talked about like minoring in foreign <laughs> relations. And I was like, please don't say that again. Yeah. The doing travel around the world is no less lame than I served X number of years on this Senate committee. You think yeah. so? I, see, I, I think it's more lame. I think that I, I, think I way agree more lame. with Tommy. Like I think Elizabeth Warren being like, we haul up these generals and we press them on why the Afghan war in Afghanistan is ended. You know, like I don't know. I, I wish I wish Warren on these commander chief questions spent more time talking about her three brothers and what it meant for them to serve and what it meant for their family because I think that's more likely to resonate. But anyway, I mean the the, the clip you played of Tom Steyer I think captures why he's been surprisingly good as a candidate but also because he paid us seven million dollars to air it <laughs> yeah no and, and obviously uh uh that was something we weren't going to talk about uh but uh no but <laughs> we have to say Tom wait, till the, wait till the mid-roll we yeah we have to say Tom Sire 14 times in this episode just to get the money but uh uh but uh no it's you see the 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 strengths he has and why he's actually been i think better than people even expected in these debates given that he is someone who uh bought a ticket um uh but uh you also see that he is a new candidate i mean he just just ran through in great detail Trump's main argument. He just like walked, he's like, he basically quoted Trump. He he hit, he he launched it as a hit on his fellow Democrats. And I, I do actually think what he said was true. This is what Trump is going to say about the economy. But I did notice that it was Donald Trump quoting it uh, on Twitter after the debate because Tom Steyer did a little bit of Trump's work for him. Look, it's always tough when uh, the reason that everyone's talking about you after the debate is because you couldn't tell people what Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were saying to each other in that exchange. The one time he didn't make eye contact all fucking night. <laughs> Four times there, every interview post-debate, they're like, what did they say? And he's like, well, I didn't hear what they said. Well, why didn't you hear what they said? What's your fucking problem? Yeah. Your, your face looked like you heard what they said. There was a journalist named Reed Epstein who we believe was joking, who was like, what does it say about, uh, shouldn't a president be able to hear <laughs> that conversation between Warren and Bernie? Which is kind of a funny joke. Kind of funny, though he said it in an annoying way. So, Okay, that's it. That's the debate, guys. Um, Great. So again, uh, there will be no Thursday pod, but we will see you all again on Tuesday for a pod because Monday is Martin Luther King Day and we will be taking that day off and so there will be a pod on Tommy is dancing. Fuck yeah, day off. <laughs> uh, we'll see you on Tuesday. Pod Save America is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Carolyn Reston, Tanya Sominator, and Katie Long for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as a video every week.